0: Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Derval. Good morning. Good morning. How are you?
1: Excited for day three of the Caribbean Month for Climate Justice.
0: I know. I've been learning so much and I've been having such a great time. I know last night we had a really packed panel and a powerful keynote and the poems. I'm still thinking about it, honestly.
1: Yes. It's
0: really been an amazing past
1: two days and now we're here at day
0: three. Yeah, and today is definitely going to be another special day because we have two panels and we have a movie as well. So it's definitely a really another amazing packed um inspiring day ahead of us and I'm really looking forward to learning and definitely the discussion that's going to happen with the film and tomorrow is another exciting day I know that we put so much effort into this and uh, you know it's, it's just four of us planning this but I'm so grateful and so thankful for the output because we really approach this taking a holistic um Perspective. And so tomorrow we have a panel that caters for children. So if you all have a young person in your life, definitely let them join us at 11 a.m. We're going to be doing a session specifically for children on children and the environment. And we're going to be reading a book called The Sprouts and the Mystery of the Flood. We also have networking, a wellness session, and a closing ceremony. So this morning, we have our panel. We're going to focus on resiliency. So what does resiliency look like in the Caribbean? Because we know we are a nation that's extremely vulnerable to climate impacts. The climate crisis isn't something that we think about in the future because it's already happening here. And I must say thank you to Janelle and Romario, both of them, they were supposed to be here, but unfortunately something came up and they wouldn't be able to join us. Janelle was supposed to be our moderator, but because of internet issues, she wouldn't be able to join, but we're going to have Duval and myself. We're going to jump in and we're going to keep the ball rolling, right, Deval?: Yes, we are. Yes. So I'm so excited. I'm going to do a brief um, overview of the panel. To set the stage, and then I'm going to hand it back over to Deval to introduce the panelists. So, as the Caribbean develops its various industries, it is important that resiliency and adaptation be centered. Although the Caribbean contributes to greenhouse gas emission is negligible relative to developed nation, it is still important that we advance our development, that we consider the planet and the most vulnerable people. This panel will look at the current need to integrate sustainability, resilience, and gender inclusivity, and seeks to answer, how can we make our economies resilient in a climate changing world?
1: Yeah, so I have the privilege of moderating this very important panel, and I'm very excited for us to get straight into it. On this panel, we have with us... First off, Ms. Leanne Rupert. Leanne is a sustainable development and climate change professional with almost 15 years of experience. She currently serves as the Senior Technical Officer for Adaptation in the Climate Change Division of the Ministry of Economic Growth and Job Creation in Jamaica. Prior to this, she served as a Sustainable Development Planning Officer with the Planning Institute of Jamaica. At the international level, Lianne is a climate change negotiator, including lead negotiator for loss and damage on behalf of the Group of Developing Nations in the Alliance of Small Island States. She is a member of the Executive Committee of the Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss and Damage, a body of the United Nations. In 2021, she served as the co-chair. She is also Jamaica's loss and damage Contact points. She is also the author of the book Building Rock Solid Resilience to Natural Hazards, the Church Edition. She is also a council member of the Jamaica Institute of Environmental Professionals. So, participants, please join me in welcoming Ms. Leanne Roper to our panel. Hi, Leanne, how are you today? Hi, good morning or good afternoon or good evening
2: wherever you're joining from. I'm doing well and excited to lend my voice to what seems to be such rich exchange so far. So really appreciate the invitation to join.
1: Thank you. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your yes to Caribbean Women for Climate Justice. So Leanne, heading straight into it. Based on your background. What are the linkages between your sector and climate change?
2: Thanks for that question. So whilst I wear many hats, the hat that I'm primarily wearing today is that of the author of the book that you mentioned when you were reading my bio, which is titled Building Rock Solid Resilience to Natural Hazards, the Church Edition. I believe that when we're talking about an issue such as climate change and how very pervasive it is, it doesn't really matter what sector you are in, there will be an impact. But what I tried to do in targeting the church primarily in this specific resource was to recognize that there is a direct role that the church itself can play when it comes to responding to or taking action with respect to climate change. On one hand, we do recognize that there has been and will be an impact on the church and how it will function. But on the other hand, the church in our region is such an important part of our society that they are well-placed to be able to render the kinds of um, assistance that is needed when we're looking at tackling climate change. It could be assistance in the form of information. It could be in expanding on what is already done where they are providing for the needs of persons whether through the um outreach programs or welfare programs that they they offer and many churches as well do provide a social service in the form of disaster shelters or those kinds of things So when we speak about this sector um, in in this way, climate change definitely does have an impact on how effective the church is likely to be. And also how it will be in the future able to provide a well-needed resource for the needs that we know are going to increase based on what our science is telling us.
1: Yes, and I love that you said that it doesn't matter what sector, you know, we're all affected by climate change. And I know for many of us, when we think of the role of the church, we would more see it in terms of our spiritual grounding. But through your book, you have, you know, revealed to us the critical role that the church can play in terms of developing resilience, which is so urgently needed in our region. But tagging onto that, Leanne, so we're talking climate resilience, we're talking involving the church in assisting with that developing resilience, but what role does gender equality play in developing resiliency, especially within the Caribbean region? Yes, that's, that's such
2: an important question. I've been hearing, uh, already coming out of the conference, some perspectives on this topic of gender equality and how gender is is such an important element for us to include in any discussion around climate change or resiliency. So in answering this question, I will just say from the outset that gender equality in my mind is about equal access to resources and opportunities. Whatever the gender we may have should not preclude us from accessing anything that will give us uh, an opportunity or propel us to have access to the kinds of resources that we need to be resilient. So with that said, uh, when we speak about resilience, we are looking for the kinds of equality that allows us to have protection to have the kinds of knowledge that we need to take action and also to resources, whether it is financial sources or it may be resources that can help in shoring up a building or whatever that might be. The gender that we have should not in any way prevent us from being able to have this kind of access. When we talk then about the Caribbean, and I know it applies elsewhere, this idea of gender is very much situated within the cultures that we have within the region or within our different countries, and even going down to the community and household level. When we consider, for example, the church, you know, I can speak from my own experience, um, growing up in the church, I will see, for example, that most of the leaders and pastors are male. And when we look as well to who are the deacons or members of a finance committee, primarily males. But then when we look on, for example, the hospitality committees or those who might be ushers, uh, we recognize that primarily those are women. So. There are different roles within different segments of society. And what is important is that all these different roles that we play will come to bear in any decisions that we will make. So if we have any chance of equal access to these opportunities or resources, then all voices, regardless of the gender or the role that is being played, should be at the table with an equal setting and voice. The consideration then is, however we operate in society or as a church, we, and church again, because of the the focus on the, the target that I had for the book, we recognize that as the leaders or as the hospitality persons or even just as somebody who is coming to visit a church there are different roles that become important if we're looking at resilience so if if you're trying to for example plan for how you will assist persons after an event you will need to understand how different genders will need the kinds of help that will be required and you need all voices to provide that kind of information so at the table at the outset this is an important consideration we also need to recognize that the way that those voices are heard needs to be taken into account as well if for example you know that there are certain persons that may not be available at certain times of the day, given the, the roles that they play in the household, so like, for example, caregivers or whoever may be the breadwinners. you need to also balance those kinds of things so that when you are meeting and taking important decisions, that you have all voices on board and that you are not um, inadvertently not hearing some important perspectives that will make anything in the end very successful or effective. As it relates to, for example, the the extreme events that we know are pretty much now a part of our norm here in the region, we have evidence and we have examples of how men and women are affected when these hazards occur. And I think it's it's less disputable now that women are primarily more vulnerable when these events occur. If we think, for example, about the persons who are pregnant or breastfeeding the women who are you know in, in these positions, you know, the needs that they will have are very different from that of males, for example. So when we're treating with resiliency and, you know, we're looking at, for example, this specific issue of how we are able to support these different um, gender, these persons, you know, male versus females, for example, when we're looking at hazards or before the hazard or during the hazard or after, we need to certainly recognize that the needs are different. And if we don't plan to, for example, accommodate those that have a higher number of or higher or different specialized needs compared with those who are, um, let me rephrase that. We need to be in such a position that the way in which certain segments of our society, particularly women that have special needs, are then able to access equal amounts of protection or resources so that they themselves are also resilient. So the needs may be greater for some, but the point is there must be equal opportunity to have resilience and we need to ensure that this is a part of all the decisions that we're taking. I think I'm rambling a little, but (laughs) I do hope that the point was made and clear.
1: Certainly Leanne, um, and you have definitely set the scene for our panel in terms of defining not only the place that the church has in building resilience, but also the the importance of integrating um, gender equality in our resiliency efforts. And you've defined it quite well in terms of gender equality being ensuring that there's equal access to resources. And, you know, this panel speaks to resilient communities and economies. And the thinking behind it is that we want to ensure that all segments of our populations, including our women who, as you mentioned, have specialized needs, are empowered and also empowered economically, which is an important element of building resilience. So, moving on to our next panelist, I will now introduce Ms. Marcel Lawrence. Marcel Lawrence began her career in the tourism and hospitality sector in Bermuda in 1992 working as a server in restaurants and numerous hotels. She has earned a BSc in psychology and anthropology from the Brunei University, UK, during which she volunteered for four months in Guyana at a children's center for disadvantaged children. She is the former acting program coordinator and Folklife Festival assistant with the Department of Cultural Affairs in Bermuda and worked in the Bermuda public education system as an educator. Marcel is a qualified lawyer called to the Bar of England and Wales and Bermuda in 2010. She earned an executive certificate in social impact strategy from the University of Pennsylvania and a sustainable tourism certificate from Global Standard Tourism Council in 2020. Marcel is a certified tourism ambassador from 2019 to 2021 and local chapter lead of Impact Travel Alliance, a global nonprofit with the mandate of increasing awareness of sustainable tourism. She is a recipient of the Bermuda Tourism Authority's Investment Experience, creator of Social Impact Tourism Program, and an experienced kayak tour guide. Let's welcome Marcel. Hi, Marcel.
3: Hi, Darval. Thank you so much for having me uh thank you to climate conscious podcast and the breadfruit collective for having me and just giving myself and the panelists an opportunity to amplify our voices and to empower us in this
1: important conversation so thank you so much yeah so good to see you so getting straight in myself we've, we've heard your amazing background Can you share with us the linkages between your sector and climate change?
3: In answering that question, I would start with the impact that the tourism industry has has made to uh, climate change in terms of greenhouse greenhouse global GHGs. I'll just say that. (laughs) And um, so, as you know, with tourism, especially with uh, Caribbean countries, is that to get to a lot of the Caribbean countries, people have to fly. And so what, what we're finding is that um, the GHGs that are produced are about 8% the last time that I had checked. So the tourism industry leads to about 8% of the greenhouse, global uh, greenhouse gases. And um, as you can imagine, because people are flying. It's quite significant and the hotels that are occupied by many tourists and the energy that is used to um, to house tourists. So that's the impact that tourism has made to uh, climate change. The other thing that I'd like to point out is that um, because of the impact that is that tourism makes to in producing the impacts of, of climate change is that more destinations are becoming uh, sustainable or is taking sustainable approaches to their tourism industry and it's it's needed they have to and i think they're recognizing that going forward that this is the approach they have to take and when i say sustainable tourism um, the model that is being used and promoted in destinations involves empowering local communities it involves um, empowering local economies and having a positive impact on the environment so sustainable models are being implemented the world around um, in islands some destinations obviously can take a more sustainable approach to to their tourism but it is catching on Um, And as you know, tourism is dependent on these destinations and the natural assets that they have. Um, Tourists travel to destinations to experience the beautiful beaches, the clear blue turquoise waters. And so if these environments are threatened uh, by whatever it may be, ocean pollution, um, rising sea levels, the coral reefs are are dying, that beauty that tourists would normally go to see would be under threat. And of course, they'll be less likely to visit uh, those destinations. And that's that's important because tourism is an important driver of economic activity. I know in my country, it's, it leads to about 5% of our GDP. And on top of that, it, it leads to thousands of jobs, and I know in the Caribbean, if not most countries, they rely heavily on tourism as a very strong economic driver. And so, if if tourism is under threat, then you know these destinations, these islands, the Caribbean is their livelihoods. The way they live um, is under threat, and so with sustainable tourism, the approach. That is used to to make a more sustainable industry helps to mitigate some of these negative impacts um, that have taken place because of climate change and even just in the industry as a whole with uh, plastic pollution with you know the numbers of tourists that visit and consume so much single use plastics um, so all these factors are taken into consideration in uh, approaching a more sustainable model Um, as I said, because tourism is such a strong economic driver in the Caribbean, uh, one in 10 jobs are held by, uh, persons worldwide in the tourism industry. So you can see that it's, it's such a strong industry. And as I said already, in the Caribbean, um, you know, it's not, if it's not the most important economic driver, it's, you know, second- and so that's that's how I would answer your question in terms of the connection of the tourism industry
1: and climate change. Thank you, Marcel. Um, and you know, the focus of this conference being climate justice, but it also takes a look at sustainable development, which speaks to balancing priorities of Um, economic, social, and environmental. And I think that the tourism industry is, it sits at the nexus of those three priorities. As you mentioned, it's one of the main economic drivers of the Caribbean. Everyone in the Caribbean understands the importance of tourism. And based on some of the points you have outlined in terms of how it contributes to global climate change and the environmental destruction, but also mindful of, you know, the way that it provides economic income and employment, it's therefore critical that we, we transform our model of tourism to become sustainable, to become resilient, so that we can use it as a vehicle to, to help us achieve sustainable development. So with that, going a bit deeper into our, the focus of Caribbean Women for Climate Justice, what are your thoughts on the way that gender equality, the way that gender equality would impact the development of resiliency in the Caribbean?
3: So um, I'm gonna take it from the angle of tourism because that's the industry that I'm in. Um, I have also created a, a social impact program that empowers young people um, to learn how to safeguard their marine environments Um, and empowers them to take a more active approach in marine conservation and climate change. And so from the program that I've produced, I can see the potential, not only for young people, but for other disadvantaged or underserved uh, communities as well. And when we talk about gender equality, obviously, you know, we're talking about empowering women and giving them the same access. Um, and opportunities that men have, and you know, involving young women into my program, that is one way that I can see that, you know, that's going to have a, a domino effect. That's going to have a pretty profound impact on um, inclusiveness and inclusive including women in the conversation of marine conservation and climate change, and because coming from an island, and most Caribbean countries are islands, the marine environment is critical. Um, You know, it's so key to our cultural identity. It's key to our livelihoods. You know, we get our food from the ocean, and if it's under threat, then, you know, we're going to have some challenges. And so my, the experience that I offer um, to young people takes place in the marine environment. And the hope is that it will empower them to um, to take a more active role in in the marine environment, whether it's to go into a conservation leadership role, whether it's to for them to uh, take a more active role in marine tourism and as a as a woman myself um, and a woman of color um it's it's even more critical to involve and include. Our voices. Um, so when it comes to tourism, it's you know it's all about being inclusive and making sure that women's voices are amplified and heard, um, ensuring that their experiences, their unique experiences, are brought to the table in terms of um, implementing a more sustainable approach. And there's no sustainable tourism if climate change is not considered. So speaking about climate change, it's the same sort of um, approach that needs to be taken is to make sure that women are uh, at the table, that diverse voices are at the table, whether it's young people, women, uh, indigenous people, their voices are are heard and are taken into account when considering different approaches to uh, mitigating climate change or climate change preparedness or climate action because each person brings a a very unique perspective um, based on their unique experiences and it's just crucial that their voices just need to be included in these conversations in the decision making because if if not again we, we fall back into the trap of Trying to create solutions without, you know, the necessary voices, especially because climate change impacts uh, vulnerable populations more than other populations. And with the with the Caribbean itself, you know, we produce less than one percent of the uh, GHGs, but yet we are so impacted by it. Whether it's stronger hurricanes, whether it's rising sea levels, um, and our natural assets that promotes and help to develop our tourism are under threat and so I would just close by saying that you know there is no sustainable tourism without um addressing the impacts of climate change and in both conversations women need to be included in those conversations and not only those conversations but the decision making of um of climate action
1: and decision-making. Thank you, Marcel. And based on what you and both Leanne have said so far as part of the conversation, a couple points jump out at me. Definitely the point of access, uh, leadership, culture, which is something you know we have to address in our region Voices, ensuring that voices are heard and how they are heard, but also table. And that's the one I would kind of focus on a bit in terms of, you know, we, we've been, I guess, demanding a seat at the table and rightfully so. Um, but unfortunately, in some cases, it seems like we have to build our own table. And I think that the Caribbean woman for Climate Justice is an example of that, where you know, we are creating our own space to highlight and also strategize for addressing these pressing issues that are, you know, directly affecting our women and girls in the region. So I think, you know, our conversation is definitely off to a great start and I will move right along to our third panelist. Miss Dani McClatchy. (laughs) So, Dani is an engineer and creative, born in Canaan, Tobago. Her passion for the environment has allowed her to conduct published environmental research during university, launch a full-time career in sustainability engineering, and become a leader in sustainable events through her nonprofit, cycle. In her last 3.5 years, Dani has been responsible for monitoring end-to-end supply chain and manufacturing processes while formulating waste and energy reduction strategies. The end results of her efforts allowed her current company to generate both environmental and cost savings through her projects. Through Cycle, Dani has been able to educate individuals and businesses on how to effectively create a sustainable carnival using circular economy principles. Danny believes that the shift toward becoming environmentally conscious should be a fun and self-reflective journey and wants to help others realize that on their journey. Hi Danny and welcome
4: hi, thank you for having <laughs> me here. And thank you so much for the um, conference team for putting together um, these panelists, because I can already see based on the first two panelists, we're so interconnected in what we do in different ways. And I've already learned so much, so I can't wait to hear from others. Um, but I'm just going to share my screen really quickly.
1: Yes.
3: So let
4: me know if you can see it.
1: Yes, Danny. So, you let us know about the linkages between your sector and climate change, as well as how gender equality would play a role in developing resiliency in our region.
4: Okay. I will preface it that this a presentation would only um, answer the first question, but I'll answer both. Don't worry. Um, so, really quickly, um Carnival cycle formed in November 2018 by my co-founder and I, Luke Harris. Um, we both met in high school in Tobago and we both shared a passion for sustainability. Um, and so through a, a series of failed business adventures, um, we land on the idea of carnival being sustainable and thus we form Cycle. Uh, So our mission is to bridge the gap between Caribbean culture and sustainability. Um, And it's important because carnival is an annual cultural event that's really important to um, Trinidad and Tobago, but also many different um, Caribbean countries. And now it's a global event where there's over 60 different carnivals. You can find it in Japan, you can find it in Europe, you can find it everywhere. But um, this beautiful event that gives people so much joy that people look forward to every year does also create a lot of waste. Um, So a lot of my lens and perspective will be from the festival tourism industry. Um, And I am proud to say that we are the first company to focus on recycling costumes in the Caribbean, specifically carnival costumes. Um, And that has allowed us to divert some waste from landfills and give some of the materials on the costume a second life. So we did a little bit of um, rebranding over the pandemic because we had so much time because there was no carnival and we've kind of reshifted our focus into three main buckets. Currently, we've been working over the last three and a half years on um, education to um, carnival stakeholders and participants, as well as research and innovation. Um, Education is kind of self-sufficient. We focus on empowering people and bringing awareness to what sustainability means to um, uh, Carnival, um, the tourism sector, and to individuals participating in Carnival. Um, So we answer the question, um, how can I make a difference um, where I am right now? So whether you're a masquerader attending Carnival for the first time or for the 10th time, we have tips for you through social media. Um, We've also, especially over the pandemic, um, held a numerous amounts of webinars on how Carnival can um, connect with um, different sectors to make them more sustainable, um, from the music sector to like the costume, like the fashion part, the costume design aspect and, Yeah, so education is really big, because if you don't know how to make a change, then you really can't make a change. Um, And then research and innovation, Um, as I mentioned before, we are the first persons to start recycling costumes, and that really taps into um, the circular economy that I'll just slightly go over um, in a couple of minutes. But um, we focus on on costume recycling and upcycling, as well as research on What sustainable alternatives can we use in the carnival industry now Um, from the costume aspects, um, from the materials people wear, like, like, like the carnival tights and things like that. All those are made out of polyester and that's basically plastic, whereas there are sustainable hosiery and brands out there. So from simple changes to that to the FETs, there's like over 180 FETs that happen on average in Trinidad and Tobago. So um, all of the materials that are procured um, to supply for the events, whether it's the the lighting or the utensils for food, how can we um, make sure those are replaced with sustainable things like LED lights or um, compostable or biodegradable, um products. Shout out to Hello Green. <laughs> um, and then in the future, we're building out um, the opportunity to consult with businesses and people within the carnival industry so that we can actually measure um, the waste that's generated um, through a structured process um, from procurement. So from um, where you're supplying the materials, what country Um, what percentage is like international versus local to um, where does it like how does it have to be put together um, before it's uh, it goes to our like our end product which is the the fet or the carnival and then how is the material disposed of after and then measuring capturing the data along that process and then making a plan so that you can reduce your waste and then know your impact because you have your baseline um, to go off of. One thing we do lack in um, the Caribbean for many different topics, not just Carnival, is solid data. So we're hoping the consultant process will help both individuals and help strengthen our our data um, that we can report out to individuals interested in Carnival. And here's just two cute pictures of what we recycle um, on male and female masqueraders. Um, we recycle the ostrich feathers, the, the gems, um, bras. And then on the males, we recycle like the shorts and all the other adornments that they wear. Um, and so now tapping into the circular economy. So. Um, specifically with costumes, which I guess would be our most innovative aspect of Carnival Cycle so far. Um, You know, the question popped into our head, what happens to um, costumes after um, Carnival? Um, Took a look into our own lives. I've played um, mass many times, and I've thrown away the costumes. (laughs) And then I've noticed that the friends and my family who played also have done the same. But then we took it a step further and decided to put out a survey and I um, realized that people um, throw away a lot of the costume, but mainly the bras, which I'll touch on later in the second question, um, 39% specifically for the bras. Um, but the material that comprises of a costume is mostly synthetic material. So plastic gems and like polyester fabrics. Um, that is then made for the event carnival that happens once a year, um, you know, for the prototype. so that is the you know the mock costume before they put it out for people to buy. They have to procure those materials, um, usually by flying to the states to get um, feathers or gems. So designers go and do that. So there's some um, greenhouse gas emissions associated with that. Um, And then they mass produce a lot of their product. It's not really made in-house like it used to in China. And then there's some shipping associated from China as well. Then finally, after the two-day festival is done, you know, a lot of people throw away the costumes. And that is a linear, um, uh, what we call a linear economy when you take, make, and waste a product. Um what Carter Cycle wants to do is transfer transform that process into a circular economy where from the design we're incorporating sustainable materials so less plastic um more natural materials, more natural fabrics or eco fabrics like um eco nile it's like a a fabric that's usually used in sustainable swimsuits um and also. Even bringing the production back in house, so maybe what machinery can we import so that we can bring the production of costumes back in house um so that we can create more jobs um and stop you know outsource less things and reduce the emissions with um, importing fully made costumes and then lastly, recycling the costumes so that the material the costumes can be broken back down and then Sanitize, clean, and then reuse back into um, next year's costume process. So fast fashion, costume carnival costumes are the fast fashion of the industry because every year um, new designs are put out. And if you want to play, you have to buy a new costume. So you can't reuse your old costume. So through costume recycling, we're able to take um, waste or, um, or prevent waste that would have went into the landfills um and then we use them in um new production year over year and that's basically the gist of um a circular economy it's um our natural life cycle you know we we're born you know we live we die we go back into earth and then new life is um formed so that is the natural way we're supposed to live (laughs) and then um over the last three and a half years you know we've had a a an impact. Um, We've collected and recycled over 200 costumes, which we're super proud of. And we've had four different recycling campaigns between 2019 to 2020 in Jamaica, Barbados, Miami, and Trinidad and Tobago. And um, our research has contributed to three different dissertations. So we've helped out with people who were um, focusing on the topic of carnival for their studies and university. And then... Our recycled product, surprisingly, I updated this number for this presentation, has been sold to over 250 people. And that number is important because it means that there's a market out there for people who want these materials, and what we're doing is important. And yeah, this is our growing network of individuals, and we uh, encourage people to be on this list.
1: Thank you, Danny. Uh, And you made such an important point that, you know, naturally we are circular, but yet our communities or economies are based on this linear model of, you know, take, make, and throw away. So you have demonstrated through this cultural event that, you know, there's a place for sustainability in every sector. And so I commend you for, you know, observing a problem, observing a gap, and then moving to close that gap and bringing others along with you on the process. So what are your thoughts on the role of gender as we seek to create um, a sustainable and resilient Caribbean?
4: Okay, so um, we actually did a webinar series last year. We collaborated with Feminine, which was actually um, a speaker, um, Ashley the founder was actually a speaker for this um, conference. But we partnered with Feminine TT, um, uh, the bra recyclers, um, I Love Girls. We were partnered with a bunch of different people in the bra industry, um, a costume designer, Sandra Horded, and then people um, within Trinidad Tobago who were actually tackling the subject of gender equality. Um, and what were the linkages, the linkages? Well, from our lens, um, climate change, as um, Leanne and Marcel would have already said, it like exasperates the current issues that we're currently facing with gender equality. So lack of resources um, uh, for, for women um, is really the big focus for us um, as we said, 39% of bras that get used in the carnival production process um, from the server we took are disposed of. Um, if that's multiplied by the amount of masqueraders in a large island like Trinidad and Tobago, where it has like 10 to 13,000 masqueraders jumping and playing, you know, that number is exemplified of how much bra waste is going into the garbage. Um, Those bras, if they were created in a sustainable way, um, and, you know, materials could be, the the plastic gems could be arranged on the bra a certain way so that they could be removed easily, could now be washed and cleaned and go towards um, people who have no access to bras, um, because these bras are only used once. Um, And, you know, bras... Um, period products and other things um, are some of the resources that women face a challenge um, in procuring right now and with climate change that, again, is only like emphasized. So their access to that is is minimized. Um, and we can see that our, our access in general to resources is minimized with climate change. We can see that going on now with shipping prices. So um, You know, because of climate change right now, rising oil and gas prices, shipping has um, increased exponentially. So it's not more expensive to get things that you would normally get. Um, And a lot of people can't afford the material that are coming in right now at their current cost. If that is expected to rise due to climate change, then more people specifically focusing on women are going to face problems in that area. Um so, with our bras um we're hoping that we can you know innovate in that um space of creating more sustainable bras so that at least with that aspect they're not just not going to the landfill but they can be reused by other individuals um and I know some people might th- think, think that's gross, but really, if you only wear a bra once it's okay <laughs> if it's washed and clean to the utmost you know um Versus, like, you know, someone throwing away, like, a old bra they've had for five years. It's only worn once. Um, and um, that's the biggest thing. And then um, going back to linking tur- tourism. Um, so right now, our economy in Trinidad and Tobago, well tourism isn't our strongest sector in terms of bringing in dollars but we're in the process of trying to diversify our economy because we can't rely on oil and gas anymore and so with bringing in let's just say strengthening um, our tourism sector for carnival and bringing in back processes where again people can create and produce um, costumes for not just Trinidad carnival but the rest of the caribbean you're giving um women more or men more security to jobs that they don't have didn't have previously and again carnival is all year round to many different um countries so they will have jobs for the whole year um, and so that's another way we're trying to push and that also um brings resilience to the gender equality um situation so yeah
1: <laughs> thank you danny and again the the issue of access to resources it runs through all of our discussions and as you have described the the circular economy allows us to reallocate our resources to ensure that everyone has access you know I, the world has enough for everyone but we have the issues of inequalities and injustices that prevent us from effectively Allocating and utilizing our resources. And that is what we need if we are to create sustainable and resilient communities and economies. Yeah, so thank you for the work that you've been doing with CarniCycle. I saw that many of our attendees are very excited to learn more about the work of CarniCycle. But before we get more into discussions with Danny, I will now. Go to our final panelist, Ms. Alyssa Amor Gibbons. Alyssa Amor Gibbons is an architectural designer with eight plus years of experience in a wide variety of projects throughout the Caribbean and the UK. She is a lead accredited professional in general building design and construction, residential homes, and a lead green reader. With a Master's of Engineering, honors in structural engineering and architecture, her multidisciplinary background and specialization in building information modeling fosters her passion for designing and delivering architecture that tells a story of consideration, environmental consciousness, energy efficiency, and resilience. When she is not in the studio, she's somewhere in nature or Underwater Exploring the Deep Blue. Welcome Alyssa Amor Gibbons.
5: Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. How are you? I'm good. Um, I pause because you know what's going on with me. I've been traveling for the past two weeks quite extensively and unsuccessfully managed to avoid COVID. So I'm currently on the floor of a lovely Senegalese sister's home, her spare bedroom, taking this call. So I'm very grateful to be here, um, despite all of the drama that has been happening. So thank you for having me.
1: Yes, and we're quite honoured that you, Anna, you are able to join us today, and despite your challenges, and we
5: do wish you a speedy recovery. Thank you. I'm ready to go home and sleep in my own bed. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) Um, Yes. Yeah. So great discussions um, so far.
1: Thank you. And um, so we're excited for you to bring your perspective from, you know, the architectural design background in terms of how that relates to climate change.
5: Yeah. Well, just off the bat, um, design and construction, even including manufacturing, which plays a big part in being able to even construct something, you must have manufactured something to build with. Um, Does a top three contributor globally to um, climate change or greenhouse gas emissions, Um, depending on what statistical body you reference, it could be anywhere as high as 40 plus, 46% um, of global um, greenhouse gas emissions contributors. So, is significant. Um, I wouldn't lay is extremely significant. And I think for me as a designer, what is even more important is the responsibility to kind of shore up the resilience of a country. So it's not just about the contribution to climate change, but then the repercussions of climate change and literally being responsible for the infrastructure, um, city planning, urban planning, both at a macro and a micro scale, to be able to ensure that cities and communities have those systems in place to be able to even call themselves resilient or stand a fighting chance to kind of spring back quickly from whatever issues arise on the back end of, of climate change. So we're talking about one of the most obvious things we face, for example, hurricanes. Um, as, we get, as we get deeper into this, this 1.5 degree that everyone keeps talking about, we as small island nations, we face you know, the brunt of what those initial changes in terms of the actual climate weather will mean. So for us, we're going to be feeling it more and more and more. So our response in terms of resilience is going to be crucial to ensuring that we not just survive in terms of this kind of broad strokes, or how do we survive climate change? But we're talking about genuinely surviving something that you know, can claim our lives, our li- not just our livelihoods and our way of life, but our actual life. So for me, as a designer, like I said, being in the built environment industry is not just about climate change, it's about the repercussions of climate change and then our response to it. And what are we doing now to set ourselves up for the future? Because systems will get worse, right? Hurricanes will get worse. Storms will get worse. Natural events will get tougher and tougher and tougher to survive. Do we have no, or are we putting in place no the systems, the infrastructure that we will need in anticipation of these increased um, natural events? Right, and going back to kind of climate change, in in generally speaking, I think. I think one of the biggest contributions from within my industry as well is is not just in the creating of the building and the installation of the building, but the energy use of the building, right? How are we using that building across its lifetime? Are we leaving on the lights all the time? What type of lights do we have installed? Um, Do we have overly sized HVAC systems? Is it mechanically cooled? Is it naturally ventilated? Were these things considered in the design process? Have we sat down as a team of experts, designers, um, MEP, um, MEP consultants, structural engineers, and coordinated our designs together in a way that we have something that's synergistic, that works holistically so that we can kind of ensure that we have thought of the best way to put this kit of parts, which is what a building is, together so that it works efficiently, right? So that we're not having huge utility bills. We are not overusing energy or over consuming. And Durval knows better than anybody how I feel about the term net zero. You you can use as much as you want, as long as you make up for it. That's not That's not the best way to go about things. Right? You should be efficient first and then figure out, okay, what can I do to make it even better? So, the built environment industry is, is so important because we spend 90% of our time in buildings. You are hardly ever outside, most people. You're either at home in a building, you're either at work in a building, you might be at church in a building, but you're in a building, so you're consuming something. Whether it's the electricity, whether it's the water within the building, there's some form of consumption, right? So there needs to be a kind of overarching awareness of the fact that you're constantly consuming based on the infrastructure that someone has designed and set up for you to inhabit. So the built environment industry, for me, is super critical that we are constantly aware and and measuring, managing our consumption within buildings, because if we don't, the actual usage would blow your mind over over the course of the lifetime of a building, how much energy, how much of a carbon footprint you actually have. And that's just talking about the use of the building. We haven't even spoken about um, the design, um, the actual construction of the building itself, what paints, what materials, what specification of the elements within the building have been considered. For example, am I going to paint my wall in a potentially toxic paint that might be off-gassing and has a high VOC content and that's impacting um, the users within the building and now they're running the fans 10 times more than they may need to if you had simply used a better product that's non-toxic. Right. So all of these little micro solutions, these micro decisions have a compound effect. And that's just one room in a building. Right. What if you have an office building that is 10 stories high, 20, 20 office cubicles within each floor? As you start to accumulate those numbers, it becomes very massive and potentially costly, not just financially, but in, if you think about it in a carbon footprint way as well so I think just to cap it all off huge impacts. top three and if you dive deeper within that subset it, it it really takes up so much it really does and I think I think the solution there is to build smarter um, a lot of my work is done using building information modeling for example where I, I really believe that if we design things in virtual reality, there's an opportunity to optimize it, tweak it, fix it, get it right before you roll out into actually physically building um, or physically constructing anything. Because in that in that virtual space, there's no loss of human life if a hurricane comes. There's no costly damage to infrastructure. Um, there is no plumber trying to put the switch pipe where a window is and then you arrive on site and now you need to pay tens of thousands of dollars to pull out pipes and buy new materials send more trucks order more material from china there's there's none of that you design it properly one time you fix it you coordinate it and then that is kind of like your ikea ikea template (laughs) then you just arrive on site and you assemble right? So I think moving forward, leaning more towards kind of digital innovation within the industry is definitely one way to make sure that we are measuring twice, cutting once. We're not ordering 10% extra of material because that's just how it's done. We can actually go into the model in that virtual space and calculate down to millimeter precision what we actually need and order just that. So there's a lot less wastage, there's a lot less um overruns of time, um, a much tighter measurable carbon footprint. Thank you, Alyssa.
1: And you mentioned that when you know when we talk about climate change, we're basically fighting for our lives, and that is no exaggeration. And you know, even with the previous speakers, we see that in every sector there is some impact, and it's important that we acknowledge and recognize that we are having an impact on our environment and ourselves. But also looking forward to how can we um, change our systems, reorient, redesign, so that we can be more in alignment. And definitely, when we speak when we speak about resilience, which is so critical to the region, given the fact that we face increasing Um, intensity and frequency of hurricanes Um, it's important that we look at how can we not just survive but also try because we want to try we want to leave a legacy for the coming generations we want to achieve sustainable development so as you said we need to design properly measure twice and cut once but when we speak about you know designing better systems improving our the way that we consume improving efficiency, um, what role do you think gender equality plays in
5: that? So this is always a very tough question for me to even wrap my head around because for me, before we even have the conversation about um, gender, I say gender inequality, we need to have the conversation about climate injustice in general right? And quite frankly, it's like having a reparations conversation. As small island nations, we are living in the present, the future that the rest of the world is poised to face, right? If you compare our landmass to the landmass of other countries, minuscule. If you compare the actual contributions that we make to the challenges that we're now facing, minuscule. So I think any conversation, we start around the themes of justice. Yes, we must consider gender, but before we even get to gender, I think we need to talk about the the global injustice number one, right? So I just need to get that off my chest because that's always a big one for me, right? So we start there, but then we arrive at, at gender inequality, right? I think we talk a lot about Um, access to resources and this is all very true but I think we also need to acknowledge the disproportionate responsibility culturally that is placed on women to address some of these issues okay so it's not just about being able to access jobs or equal pay or equal rights um, the, the violences if even even if I can say that but you know what I mean that we endure as women is also about the disproportionate responsibility that's placed on us to kind of fill the gaps in keeping a household running right so when you talk about um when you talk about climate issues exacerbated by poverty um disproportionately so in brown and black communities even right we also need to talk about when 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 that impacts finances, for example, or access to jobs, whether it be man or woman, right? Where there's lack, I find, in in my humble opinion, that women are often culturally somehow expected to be the ones to keep things ticking over, right? Right. Even if um, the man of the household, for example, or or some of the older children in the household, they might be actively trying to find jobs. They might be actively trying to to find alternate sources of income to help keep the household running. But until that comes, whose responsibility is it to make sure that the kids are fed? Things are still taken over. Everything is still taken care of. I think culturally... Within the Caribbean, that's a very female-heavy responsibility, right? So I think there needs to be some kind of conversation around not just access to resources, but how do we how do we equally distribute that responsibility? Is there a cultural mindset that needs to switch? Is there more um, support that needs to be given, not just um, in those kind of tan- tangible offerings? in terms of jobs or whatever, but is there some kind of shared support that needs to be given to to women, for example, or young girls to be able to help kind of take some of that burden of responsibility off of them, right? Another example I'll give you coming from the built environment um, industry. I probably should not say this. Let me try to rephrase this. I don't wanna get nobody in trouble. Insurance, right? If your house is not insured, right? Something happens in a in a natural event. In the in the interim, you're not able to make a claim or whatever. You don't have insurance, right? Who who fills that gap? Who takes care of of finding the funds to rebuild or or to prepare for the next system that might be coming soon? who is going and getting the food to make sure that everybody in the house can still eat who fixing the roof that the wind now blow off right we, we I, I think we talk a lot in general about about what the issues are but I think we also need to to similar to what Marcel said is actually hear the voice of the person saying the specific issue because it's, it's not is not as ethereal as we sometimes make it seem where, where we often say there's inequality, there's inequality, but what does that actually mean to that one person in a household who's, who cannot make ends meet anymore or, or is being impacted, right? It means that there's no roof over their head, right? They, they don't have access to water in Barbados. We are what the 15th most water scarce, Country in the entire world, and I I would say that to people, and they'll be like, "Oh, wow!" And that's all from climate change, yes. But what does that mean? It means that every other day, my water gets turned off, right? In a household with young young women who might be now coming into themselves as women under cycles for the first time, what does that mean for them if they can't wash themselves properly every day? You know. That's not the same impact it's going to have on a young man who can wash himself every day because he does not have to go through the same cycle, for example, that a young lady might. So all of these little things, those are real examples of, of some of the issues that we face. And I think Marcel said it beautifully, we need to hear those voices because not everyone sitting down is going to be able to draw these kind of vague terms down to actual issues that you can then put as a line item on a spreadsheet and put a dollar value next to it and attribute some kind of cost to what it would take to make this not an issue you know and there was one other thing I wanted to say as well even though I think the equality is an issue I also like to think that because of how seriously now everyone is taking climate change. There's a whole avenue of potential job opportunities, new sectors that are emerging, and who else to, to fill those spaces than people who maybe don't have access to opportunities, right? So we're talking about PVs, renewable energy, um, technicians, researchers, um, in areas not just related to renewable energy, but food security, um, agricultural researchers, this whole host of, of, of hot topics, food security, renewable energy, water scarcity, these are all opportunities I feel as well that should be flooded um, you know by women because it is is an obvious gap and but there's also an obvious opportunity Right. So, yes, I do understand that there are inequalities that exist. I do understand their issues. Climate change is this looming reality that we are constantly being forced to engage with. But I think there's also opportunities there to kind of fill those gaps, get innovative and creative and kind of dive as deep as we can into some of those emerging markets.
1: Yes, and yesterday on our panel, Oro said that the you know climate change is not just a crisis but an opportunity, and you have outlined some of the opportunities that we have that would allow, you know, our women to be empowered as we face the challenges before us. And I think you defined it well in terms of showing how the the inequality between regions, um, is re- is also reflected in the inequalities between the genders in terms of the you know, the distribution of responsibility. And that's something we also need to pay attention to, as you said, not just access to resources, but also taking into consideration the burden that is placed on our women and girls. So now we'll get into our general panel discussion. I'm excited to bring everyone into the conversation. And we we do have some engagement in the chat and some questions from our attendees. So I want to bring Marcel back, in, back into the conversation because we, we have highlighted many of the challenges, but I also want us to focus on solutions, focus on moving us forward. So Marcel, um, when we think about creating um, resilient Caribbean communities and economies that are equitable inclusive and resilient. What would you recommend?
3: As I said earlier, it's, it's important to be sure that we are including as many people as possible from as many different backgrounds as possible. I know we're talking about women today. Um, so young people, um, people of color in some regions, people of color don't have a say, Uh, indigenous people and young people as well. So in terms of creating that equitable, inclusive and resilient community, this this factors are important. And I say that is because those communities tend to be impacted by climate change the most, yet they contribute the least to climate change. Um, so, so when it comes to decision making, when it comes to climate action and creating those solutions, it's so important that they be included in the conversations. So there's, there's persons from those communities, um, if their voices can be empowered, if they can have the same access and opportunities to the education about climate change, because not, not everyone is afforded that opportunity to understand the dynamics the the intricacies about climate change. I think that will be um, key to build that capacity among those communities and it 's just basically just being inclusive and making sure that everyone is involved because everyone's going to be impacted by climate change in some way it's not just for the privilege it 's not just for some communities to be involved but it's for everyone to be involved and I think that's that's for me that's where it starts
1: yes we definitely I'm you know I'm wondering why do we continue to have these one-sided conversations you know but I guess it ties back to you know this the sharing of power and maybe even the gatekeepers of power and um but the work that we all do in our different sectors, you know, it, it would push towards changing that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, creating your own table if you're not invited to, to the existing table and challenging the existing systems that do not serve us. So I want to bring Leanne into the conversation. Um into, you know, as a region, we have experienced a number of, devastating events, natural events um, that have incurred significant loss and damage to various member states of the region. What lessons can we learn from previous climate disasters that have impacted the Caribbean region? Thanks for that question.
2: Um, So I would go for um, perhaps taking a step back first when we're talking about lessons that we have learned. The first point is that the past is not going to necessarily mirror the future. In that, what we're seeing is things have been devastating in the past in increasing measure, but what the science is telling us is that these are going to become even worse in the future. So it's not to say that there are not lessons we can learn, but just to say that what may have happened in the past is not going to be an exact replica of the future. So the lessons that we take must bear that in mind. The other point that I would want to make is that uh, an event, whether it's a storm or a drought, does not always have to result in a disaster. The disaster happens when the systems are not adequate enough for people and lives and property to be protected, to be safeguarded. So when we talk about a disaster, we're talking about a disruption in how we are able to function in light of the exposure that we have to hazards and also our capacity to adapt and to cope and all those other factors around vulnerability that we have been discussing. So this includes, for example, issues of gender and those kinds of things. So then when we look to the lessons, the first I would say is that um, in some instances, disasters are not inevitable, but in others, there is some evitability, and we need to see how best we can understand where the two uh, are separating. So, So we have, for example, many examples of how early warning systems have prevented people from being um, injured or from loss of lives, for example. And so we can see where in an instance like this, there has been uh, success where disasters with respect to loss of lives have been um, proven. But then we see that the way climate change has evolved means that there are a lot of stronger events that are expected. So what this means is that what may have worked well in the past may not be as effective in the future. And so even in taking lessons from what may have happened in history, we can see to what extent we are expecting the stronger storms or hurricanes or um and whatever the event may be, and what we need to do to either prevent or to reduce the extent that it actually becomes a disaster. If we know that a particular area that may not necessarily have been hazard-prone in the past is becoming increasingly so, it means, for example, that the loss of property may be somewhat unavoidable. However, it does mean that loss of life must also accompany that. So in this first lesson, it's looking at what is likely to be inevitable, but also realizing that disasters to some degree can be prevented. The second lesson I would say is that we cannot over prepare. I know that there are times the weather forecasters may say that there is a hurricane water or hurricane warning, and then due to physics, <laughs> there is a shift, and we may not necessarily get the the hazard in the way that it was predicted, and we may take that to say oh, well, perhaps next time I won't be as prepared or I won't respond as well. But I think, you know, on the flip side, we're seeing more where the forecasters are saying we can expect a Category 1 hurricane. And as we saw in the case of Dominica a few years ago, it literally moved from a Category 1 to a Category 5 overnight, you know, in, in a few hours. So there is no over-preparation that we can do when it comes to these climate events. And the third lesson I would say is that together we can be stronger and better. The the examples that we, we see, even from our own households or communities, is that when we are working together, when we're sharing information, checking in on each other, Um, trying to give any support that we can, whether financially or through materials, then we are all in a better position to be resilient. And I think if we can strengthen that collective uh, way that we support each other and how we come together, I think that that lesson is something that we definitely would want to take forward in the future. So that would be it for
1: me on that. Thank you, Leanne, for that comprehensive um, lesson in terms of, you know, what we can take away from those past events. And tapping onto that, I'd like to bring Alyssa back in, in terms of given that we, we face these natural hazards, um, and given that we we know that we have weak infrastructure, we have a we have fragile economies in the region, and we we face challenges in terms of our uh, our ability to bounce back from these events. Um, What are your thoughts in terms of how we may better
5: prepare for these impacts? So let me apologize before I get started. The host family is back so it might be a little loud in the background, I apologize. Um, In terms of how we can actually prepare, um, I think there are two ways. One, I think we need to dramatically change our mindset in terms of how we design and build in the Caribbean. This global convention that we have adopted of trying to close our buildings off from nature is not going to serve us well as things get worse and worse, number one. Um, Number two, and I'll come back to that because that's potentially kind of contentious to say because you might think you wanna protect yourself from nature and here I am saying, we kind of need to open up a bit more to it. Um, Number two, like I was saying before, we need to design smarter. Not smarter, as in, we lack intelligence now, but I think we need to utilize more digital tools um, in terms of simulation environments to begin to comprehend how our buildings actually respond in natural events. We are not God, we cannot play God, but we are smart enough to give it a shot to try to figure out how buildings, as we design them, actually respond to certain wind patterns, certain categories of hurricanes etc right so stop buildings from closing themselves off from nature I'll give you an example and it just came from giving a talk about this so it's kind of heavy on my heart lately after the abolition of slavery in Barbados right Our ancestors, they couldn't just go and buy land to build a home because the land was still property or chattel of the enslavers. So imagine having to build a home that could withstand hurricanes, but was still temporary enough that if you had, you know, issue with the former enslaver, you literally used to pack it up on the back of a truck or donkey cart and move it, right? So how could these structures that were so temporary still be surviving hurricanes right what they actually used to do was when the hurricane winds get too strong the houses were very symmetrical they had louvers on them they would open the louvers and let the let the facade filter the wind through and break it down and pass through the building and out through the windows at the back right so they literally used to open the house to the hurricane to kind of dissipate the wind so it wouldn't get build up too much of the destructive pressure on the walls and let the wind pass through they will hide on the sides in the corners and just let the hurricane come through the building that's so counterintuitive to everything we know about how you should brace yourself against the hurricane but what if you're not rich you don't got money to buy hurricane shutters what do you do then right what's the most accessible way to survive you let the wind come through and that mindset, I think, is one that we need to revisit in the Caribbean, right? I think we have adopted this this more global mentality of closing off closing off the building, but that is that's a predominantly cold weather country thing because you're trying to keep moisture and cold out. We're not trying to keep moisture and cold out; we're trying to stop the wind from building up so much pressure on the facade to knock it over. And the best way to do that was to kind of give it easement, give it places or opportunities to reroute so it never got to that extra destructive force. Right. So I think a mindset shift and a bit more experimentation, um, a bit more iterative design, even if it is in that kind of experimental 3D space where you can run hurricane simulations, which is something I do. Run a category five hurricane simulation against different facade types, different building shapes, and actually understand which of these types of solutions actually works in different situations. Right? Then we do a prototype, right? Then we build a database. And somebody in Guyana, somebody in Belize, somebody in Trinidad, they could go onto this database. They can say, okay, in this country, they tried this. It was a category one hurricane. It, it did not fail. It survived to this, this strength of wind. Is this something we can utilize? Yes or no. So I think what Leanne was saying about this kind of shared um, shared knowledge, I think would do us well in the region to be able to start to understand and not guess. I don't like guessing. We need to actually know what works and what does not. and How do we do that? We test it, right? We, y'all, I get real mad about this. We as humans putting people into space for leisure. You know what I mean? We are, as, as a species, we're smart enough, intelligent enough to figure out how to live on and survive in Mars. You can't tell me that Mars is not more extreme than Earth. So why we can't figure out how to survive hurricanes? You know what I mean? I don't think it's beyond us. I'm not saying we play God, but I say we use the tools that we have to get ourselves as close as possible to actually understanding and not guessing what it would take for our structures to actually survive. I don't think that's beyond us. We, we, we all intelligent, you know, I, I believe that if we set that as a task, we can figure it out instead of always having to guess. I don't like hurricanes. I used to be terrified. As a child, my my biggest goal, right, was to be rich enough to be able to afford a plane ticket because somebody told me that hurricanes don't farm at certain um, latitudes. And my only goal as a little girl was to be able to be rich enough so that if a hurricane was coming, I could just buy me a, me, a plane ticket and we could go and wait till the hurricane passed. That was it. Right. But I think we know enough now to be able to to dive into this as a as an intellectual question and not just be guessing, not just be guessing all the time. Right. That's number one. <laughs> um, Let's just do better. Let's let's try to attack this as a like a hypothesis. What does it take? What kind of structure does it take to survive a hurricane? That would be my first one. Let's apply our knowledge, our, our intelligence, our intellect, to and treat this as a genuine problem, because guess what? It is. It is.
1: Yes, let's do better. And um, in one of the earlier panels, I believe it was our first panel, we spoke about the fact that we, um, we have imported a model of, of development. And we've also imported, you know, a model of, of the built environment. And it's time that we, we come up with our Caribbean vision that meets our needs. And definitely we can, um, you know, build smarter, design with the environment in mind, not against it. You know, I wonder when we started closing off ourselves and our buildings from the environment. And I think that's where we can trace, you know, the decline in our natural environment and our, our assets. Um, but before I see, there's a lot of activity in the chat, but before we get into the q and E, I want to ask Dani for her perspective. You know, we've been speaking a lot about resilience and it's re- resilience is multidimensional. It's complex. There's the disaster aspect of it in terms of the built environment. But there's also, you know, the socioeconomic part of it um, when we're talking about being able to bounce back. So I would love to hear from you, Dani, any perspectives on um, creating resilience, Communities that are inclusive in and equitable.
4: Yes, um, I've thought about this question a lot. Um, it kind of—I have to fast forward to what I like envision in the future. Um, so, let's just say a percentage of the world has access to air conditions. Not everyone in the world has access to air conditions. Not everyone in the world has access to modern technology. Um, Let's say with climate change on the forefront of minds, you're getting a push in, you know, countries with access to those things to reduce the use of air conditions or reduce the use of um, access to these modern technologies when the rest of the world hasn't even caught up to that. So when I envision like a sustainable future, it's that we have access to technology and things that make our life convenient and easy um, without sacrificing the environment. You know, for years, you know, my family has been wine drying our clothes and not using a washing or not using a dryer, whereas it's convenient and the rest of the world has access to a dryer. I feel like, you know, countries should still work households should still afford to be able to have a dryer without harming the environment because it's way more convenient you know what I mean so when I think about a sustainable future or sustainable communities it's like creating and innovating and using the intelligence that Alyssa spoke about to come up with solutions where you know we can all live in a modern world without sacrificing um our planet or the environment um now to answer specifically, like more about the question he yeah. asked. Um, so, what can we do? What are recommendations for our Caribbean communities um, and strengthening, strengthening our economies? I think um, a big part of it is to bring back what we export and bring that in um, to our country. So, bring that like bring those operations into our our, our islands. Um, one of the things that most Caribbean countries import a lot is food, for example. So uh, reducing the import of food from other um, nations and increasing the agricultural industry is going to help us be more resilient to the disasters that we're going to see in the future. I like to draw a reference to Singapore a lot. Because Singapore is a small country that is a small island country that has went through a lot of the things that we have gone in terms of um, being owned by other countries and then finally becoming an independent country and then working really hard to um, strengthen its its economy, to be resilient to climate disasters, to um, make sure that its infrastructure is green, Alyssa, you probably know all about it. <laughs> um, they have even a, a law where they're trying to make 80% of its buildings green by 2030. Um, so they are a small country um, that import 90% of its food. <laughs> um, and they also um, are one of the um, biggest ports where like oil and gas is um, traded. So um, they face a lot of similar... Um, problems we have but they've been able to you know implement changes to make like their communities easier one thing they're working on right now so I draw a reference to this because Trinidad and Tobago faces a lot of flooding right um so one thing that Singapore is doing is they're creating these um these kind of paths or reservoirs where um the water from the flooding can sink into that and it can be used to, it could be used for um, the agricultural sector. I'm not really the best at explaining that, but there's a a lot of like technology that they're using um, that we could apply um, in our country. So just like Alyssa said, I feel like there are some solutions out there that have been created where we just need to work with other countries to, f- to figure out what we can adapt. And then there's some innovation that needs to be involved um, to strengthen our communities. But um, I think reducing what we import, um, making those jobs, um, reducing what we import will increase the jobs that we have. So that's in, um, impacting our like economy. Um, it's increasing the livelihood of people within the island, and then it's increasing our our stock. So when a climate disaster, you know, God forbid, does strike, you know, we're not um, having or seeing food food shortages. We're not um, relying on as much emergency um, supplies from other countries because we've made a point to either like build our stock or um within the island or build um manufacturing processes or industries that would allow us to continue to create those supplies without relying on those being shipped to us so yeah thank you Dani
1: so, our audience has been really engaged throughout our panel, so I want to bring them in. We do have a question from Aisha Constable. I do, Aisha, do you want to pose your question um, through audio? You can raise your hand if you want to speak directly to our panel. Or oh, I can read it out. <laughs> and I encourage our other participants to place your questions in the Q&A session section. So I'll ask Aisha's question, which is posed to Leanne. And she asks, are there any biblical prescriptions for the division in the role of men and women in the church? And are there any implications for decision-making by the church on climate based on this division? Yeah, thanks, Aisha, for that question. Uh, As
2: it relates to biblical prescriptions, I would say no. The Bible can be viewed as either um, prescriptive in some sense, but also as providing principles for us to operate on. So from my understanding, the Bible has not been prescriptive to say men must do this and women must do this. Uh, As well, the Bible was written in a particular cultural context. And so it's the principles from the Bible that we really pull on. I think one of the things the Bible does say very clearly is that we must do our best to protect those who are vulnerable and i think that would be one of the more prescriptive side of the bible you know we must love and care for each other but also to care for the vulnerable you know whether it's in the old testament where there has been a charge for protecting foreigners or you know widows and orphans or even in the New Testament, where in in James, it talks about um, the the kind of religion that God accepts, which is to look after the vulnerable paraphrased. Um, That I think is a general prescription. If we take it in the context of gender, then uh, where we see that there are some who are more vulnerable than others, I think by applying the principle, we can recognize that there is still some um, application that we need to adopt where we do take those differences, those those vulnerabilities into account, and we ensure that the decision-making processes are responsive in that way. Um, Let me just see... Um, if there are any implications for decision making, yes. So, I think I, I answered that question. So, just to reiterate that the principle is about caring and caring for those who are particularly vulnerable. I think um, Aisha, in your own remarks yesterday, you spoke as uh, quite a lot about the the ways in which women, in particular, have particular um, have certain vulnerabilities. And certainly um, all of these would, in my mind, need to be accounted for in whatever the church may do or will be doing in this new era where climate change is becoming a more pervasive issue. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Mian, for that. And. Marcel, there's a question for you in terms of giving an example of the unique experience that a woman may have that you saw was important to take into account for sustainable tourism. And that question was posed by Natalie Bibby. Okay. Thank you, Natalie, for that
3: question. So um, sustainable tourism in- encompasses um, empowering local communities, ensuring that the local economy is sustained and that the environment is protected. So when it comes to um, empowering the local communities, being inclusive of women's perspectives in the tourism industry is also key. And what what the research says about that is that women bring very unique experiences And in Caribbean countries and in a lot of other islands, women are more than likely the cultural bearers. They are the keepers of cultural traditions, folklore. They're the artisans. They're the storytellers. And so because of all these attributes, they bring a very unique perspective. And because of that, when it comes to arranging tours or itinerary for tours, including women in this experiences brings a whole different perspective that visitors may not normally experience. So it empowers women's voices in the tourism industry and tourists gain a lot because they are experiencing a completely different perspective and learning more about a destination's culture. that
1: answers that yes thank you leanne um i mean the conversation is going so good but we are pressed for time so i want to pose this next question to the entire panel and i'm paraphrasing a bit from sylvia Aluas. hi sylvia who's joining us from the us and i want to ask um our panelists how do we ensure that jobs and the climate solutions are equally and justly distributed along gender and socioeconomic lines. So who wants to go first?
5: Alyssa, can you take that one? Yeah. Yeah, I think to start with, training access to training but I think part of empowerment is having the tools or feeling empowered that you have the tools to be able to tackle a job I mean how many of us have come across like a job description and like there are like nine things out of the ten that you know how to do but because of the last one you don't apply now imagine if there were nine things out of the ten that you did not know and you applied they are i don't I, I don't want to like, play on any gender stereotypes, but I think statistically, if you look at who applies for what, statistically women apply less than men for things if they think that they do not tick every box. right? So I think empowerment if and training is part of that. If you feel that like you've been tooled up to be able to tackle a certain job, you're more likely to apply for it. So training, access to training, um, whatever educational tools or courses um, at whatever level, whether that be primary, secondary, vocational institute, I think access to training is, is like the first step at the very least to ensure that, that those jobs start to be um, acquired or at least applied to by more women. Yeah, I would
2: probably um, add to that change in mindset. I think we, in our various backgrounds, have preconceived ideas about the types of jobs or roles that women versus men um, should have. And if we are then trying to see how gender equality is included in that labor space, particularly in climate change, then the mindsets that we have where we can have more diversity in these different spaces, I think would be important. Those who are in positions to hire persons, or as Alyssa said, um, or uh, on the other side, where you are also applying for these jobs, you know, we we need to change our mindsets so that we can have a better balance in that regard.
4: Yeah, I want to echo on the, um, both your guys' thoughts as well. I, I went to university in the states, and then so statistically in the states, only three percent of engineers are black women. So. Um, That's a really low number. And that's just in the States. So I could imagine the rest of the world. Um, And that follows along any type of STEM major, architecture, sciences, doctors. And I think, you know, like Alyssa said, along as training and education, so getting a degree in those fields needs to be pushed by universities, um, as well as in um, businesses and corporations. Something that I see that is a trend, at least in um, Europe and North America states, um, our inclusion of like DNI or diversity and inclusion strategies. I haven't really seen that trend in Caribbean companies as yet, and so I think we can start there again with our leaders and um, people who are in charge of making decisions to start putting a focus on. Um, diversifying the type of um employees that are being recruited in your company. Um and that will help the business too. Like there's research shown that if you have a diversified business in terms of employees, in terms of race and gender, you're most likely going to have more innovation, um, more productivity, um, XYZ because there's um so much different background experience that contribute to um, a successful employee, and um, yeah. <laughs> so that's those
1: are my thoughts. Marcel, would you like to add? No pressure. <laughs> I just add um, some brief
3: comments. So um, with what I do, I work in the marine tourism industry. I'm a kayak guide, and in Bermuda, what I noticed was that there's definitely a lack of diversity in that environment there is a lack of um, people of color. And then to add on to that, there's definitely a lack of women who are of color. And so one of the things that I'm trying to achieve with this youth program, the Kayak youth program that I'm working on at the moment is to improve or to increase the number of young Black children in Bermuda who are able to experience the marine environment who wouldn't normally have that access to help to increase the the diversity. Because, again, it comes down to the inclusion. It comes down to, you know, people protect what they love. And if they don't have that exposure, if they're not in that environment and being exposed to it, they don't really have a connection to it. And so, persons who, who may be given into marine conservation or climate change, they may be they may be attracted to this um, jobs because they've had that exposure. But for people who haven't, that's not a consideration for them in terms of a job they want to do because they're just not connected to it at all. So, um, yeah, that's that's one of the things that. Um, I'm hoping to achieve is to inc- increase the diversity in in that environment in Bermuda in particular.
1: Thank you for that. So, Danny, I think we have some Carnival babies in the audience. There's a question about um, the initiatives for Carnival Cycle for Carnival 2023, and while Danny is um, about to answer, I'll have all our panelists think panelists think about their closing statements as we wrap up today's session. Over to you, Danny.
4: Carnival is back, finally, 2023. Um, we're so excited to be able to start doing things in person again. And we're also so excited to um, be a part of the growing sustainable tourism industry, so for Carnival twenty twenty three, we will be back um, uh, with our recycling campaign in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, we have a goal for at least the costumes aspect to is ambitious, but triple <laughs> the amount of costumes that we collected during um, our first um, Carnival costume collection in Trinidad in twenty twenty. But um, aside from that, we're also um, working with some small accommodation, um, uh, businesses because they play a vital role in our operations. So, um, the way we collect our costumes is we usually work with, um, local restaurants and hotels and guest houses to put collection boxes in, in, um, in front of their businesses. Um, that way, um, we're ensuring that, uh, Guests, No matter where they're staying has um, access to recycle their costume and they don't have any excuses because there's a donation box near you. Um, And so that's the one of the ways we partner with them. And so um, to strengthen sustainable tourism, we're trying um, to partner with them to um, increase the sustainability of their their buildings. Um, So um, through energy assessments. as well as a, a look at their um, energy uh, appliances, as well as um, what other current waste management strategies in their building. Um, and I'm specifically working on this because um, it helps strengthen our partnership, but also um, my day job. This is what I do, but at my manufacturing plants. So um helping to do this in the small accommodation industries is um, gonna be really exciting as well. And then um, lastly, partnering um, with our uh, waste collection industry. So for carnival festivals, typically we've only collected um, material and sent it to the landfill. Um, There was no collecting of recyclables and material during our carnival. And so um, we're hoping to actually start that this year or next year, Um, starting to actually collect recycling and um, waste separately during the carnival parade day. So that would be a big feat.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Danny. I'm sure our carnival junkies would be looking forward to that. Um, The fact that they're here means that they have an interest in sustainability, so if we can marry their passion for carnival and their passion for sustainability. That would be great. Um, We do have one final question from the audience. Um, So I'll throw it out to the panel um, for whoever wants to take a shot. But how else can we advance a collective space where we can work together as a Caribbean community and the broader diaspora? And they also add on, is it too soon for us to ally with African nations? So who wants to take that? I I could
2: perhaps start there. (laughs) One of the hats that I wear uh, is being a climate change negotiator. And that means when we go to the international level, whilst I may be leading on some areas with respect to island states, we also do partner with others who are developing countries and also to be severely affected by climate change. And that includes um, African countries as well as least developed countries, uh, which would, for example, include our own Haiti from the region. So there is in different spaces, this ongoing partnership with countries outside the region in Trying to get our collective voices speaking on the topic of climate change and asking, and even in some cases, demanding that the countries that have the resources to do better that they need to, because our lives are literally dependent on that. I think. What we can therefore continue to do is to have spaces like this where we can have these kinds of discussions. We can build off each other's experiences and uh, have that network where if we are able to identify the resources, whether through knowledge or otherwise, that can help someone else or another country or whatever the case may be that we continue to do so um so that would be my very quick reaction on that
5: can i add quickly to that too man it's never too late to ally with africa we kind of already allied by blood no (laughs) um but what i would say is um leanne is spot on in terms of not just being island problems, but developing states issues. And I think particularly from my perspective in the design industry, we have very similar issues, even though we have very different kind of geographies in terms of like land area. Um, Housing is a huge issue, particularly in East Africa, and that we're facing um, in Barbados and I'm sure in many other Caribbean islands. So smart solutions for homes. Um, sustainably designed homes, homes that can capture, harness um, rainwater to help deal with some of the issues of water scarcity or poor access to surface water are two huge similarities that I see popping up between um, the islands and um, Africa, particularly East Africa. And I think what I'm a bit of a geek, so I will be really excited to see some kind of digital space, metaverse, um, communal space where we can start to prototype out different solutions and kind of digitally analyze them across different geographic um, climates. Um, That gets me very excited. But I think also the opportunity to do rapid prototyping or roll out actual physical housing solutions across different um, geographic areas to see how they actually perform. And what makes me even more excited about that is the potential export opportunities um, for the region and not just export of physic the physical product because Africa is much larger and it has the, the, the capabilities to mass produce. But I'm talking about the export of intellectual property to start solving some of these solutions um, within the African diaspora for not just the African diaspora, but for Africa itself. So, yeah. Thanks, Alyssa.
1: And I would love to continue the conversation, but we are out of time, unfortunately. So as we wrap, I would give each panelist half a minute (laughs) and give us in one sentence your closing thoughts on your vision for resilient communities and economies in the Caribbean. So we can start with Marcel.
3: So my my closing remarks would be the education bit, the capacity building of um, these communities that may be vulnerable, that may be marginalized. And in terms of tourism, You know, tourism is a big part of the Caribbean, it's a big part of islands' economies. And I think that if we can achieve a sustainable tourism industry, I think that we have to include climate change um, action as well. So those two combined, if we take the necessary action, I think that we can um, create a more sustainable development um, model in the Caribbean. Thanks, Marcel.
4: Dani? Um, so my ambition um, starts with inclusion. So including those people, so including Caribbean countries, including communities within Caribbean countries who are most affected by climate change into the conversation so that our solutions don't exclude them because that has happened before. Um, and then working together with, Um, And collaborating to to ensure that um, our solutions can be multiplied and amplified by not just um, uh, one country or one community, but um, countries around the world. And so really starting with including the people who are most affected and then collaborating um, across different um, industries and different people. Thank you,
3: Danny. Lianne? Thank you. My
2: vision is for a truly resilient region uh, and this is in all the ways that count. In the physical sense, uh, we do acknowledge that there will be some challenges because I think in Alyssa's presentation earlier, she alluded to the fact that, for example, when we have damages to buildings or when we need to build more resilient structures, there is that gray area about who will be responsible, um, particularly when there are vulnerable among us. So, if we can find a way together to actually become resilient in the physical space that we occupy in our buildings, Um, in the natural resources that we rely on, uh, whether for for protection or for our food, for our recreational purposes, and be able to recognize that we don't have to accept that disasters are inevitable in some instances, then I think we will be getting in that direction where we are becoming resilient in the face of unimaginable um, hazards that are to come.
1: Thank you Leanne and Alyssa.
5: Thank you. Um, I'd say the vision I see is one that's guided by synergy and innovation. I don't think there's ever one quick solution for a multifaceted problem that solution usually comes from cross-industry collaboration and identifying the synergies that kind of give way to what that solution might be and I think that naturally breeds innovation no one is coming to save you sometimes you have to save yourself and I think we as Caribbean people we know who we are we know our identity we know the unique problems we face and I think out of that comes the solution the innovation to form the solution so for me it's really kind of re-identifying what is the Caribbean of the future the future that we are now all about to walk into who are we as that Caribbean future and out of that what are the innovative new ideas that would kind of shape that new future that we walk into
1: Thank you so much, Alyssa, and thank you to all our panelists for such an engaging and insightful discussion on creating um, resilient and sustainable communities and economies for our region. As As I've been saying for the past few days, I'm so inspired by the wealth of resources and expertise that resides in our region, and I am therefore very confident that we can face and overcome the challenges that are before us. And I'll now hand over to Christine to close off this morning's session.
0: Christine. Thank you so much, Duval. Thank you to our panelists. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. And when some of the notes I've written down and I'd like to share, especially for those who have jo- just joined us, when we think of changes, it has to happen in cultural spaces with everyday people. It happens when everyone gets involved, those who play mass and even in the church, There is no over-preparation when it comes to climate events. Together, we can be stronger and better. We need to design smarter, utilize digital tools, treat this as a general problem, because it is. And we need to change our mindset on the roles we place on people. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday, out of your weekend. Thank you for your work for your passion. We're grateful for you, Alyssa. Wishing you a speedy recovery. Danny, Leanne, Marcel, and our moderator, Deval. Thank you. Thank you so much. So now we're going to take a five-minute break. So definitely get some water, stretch. We have a movie that's going to be speaking to the same issue of climate resiliency and communities. So we welcome you all back in five minutes. Thank you.